Welcome to another edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is percussionist and music industry legend, Jim Catalano. Jim recently retired from Ludwig Drums after a 37-year career. He has lots of great advice for people wanting to get into the music industry and how to stay in the music industry and be successful. He also has some great stories about some of the legends he was able to work with, including Gary Burton and Ringo Starr. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hey, Jim, this is Sean Kennedy. Hey, Sean, good to hear from you. Jim, on my podcast, I usually start at the beginning with most of the folks I talk to, um, how they got involved with music and all that. But before we do that, um, where are you from? Well, I'm actually originally from Meadville, Pennsylvania, which is a small town about 40 miles south of Erie, Pennsylvania, off the lake. Hmm. And I um, grew up there and, you know, went to high school there and everything. Yeah. And where do you currently reside? Well, right now, uh, and well, since 1977, when I graduated from Notre Dame, I moved to Goshen, Indiana, which is uh, near Elkhart or very close to South Bend, Indiana, in uh, just a nice little community uh, in the northern part of Indiana, and was close to the Ludwig uh, office. And of course, it's a place uh, I do a lot of gigging from this area in the northern Indiana, southern Michigan area. So I know you recently just retired from Ludwig. You'd been there for how many years were you there, did you say? Well, I actually started in the music industry in 1978 when I started to work as a, a percussion product manager for the Premier Drum Company when it was owned by Selmer. And hmm. then in, in 1981, I actually left that job and, and, I, went, and I went to Slingerland when it was owned by C.G. Kahn. So you notice I just said Selmer and I just said Kahn. Right. Those were two <laughs> separate companies, okay? Wow. And, uh, and then after two years as working as the advertising manager for CG Kahn, which included Slingerland drums and Deegan Mallet instruments, I got an opportunity to go back to the Selmer company because now Selmer owned Ludwig instead of Premier. And so, <laughs> yeah, so I started at, at Ludwig in 1983 as the uh, marketing manager and stayed there for 36 point some years. And so wow, it was uh, quite, a, quite a run. It was an incredible run. Um, very proud of it. Uh, you know, when you think about it, I sort of got to be the handoff guy from the Ludwig family to take it into the, you know, the next generation. And that's sort of what I did. And, and now, you know, I handed it off to the next guys that are going to take it into the, the future from here. Incredible. You know, uh, me growing up, seeing all the trade magazines and various things, uh, for me, you were the face of Ludwig. And when I finally got to meet you a few years ago and connect with you, it was like <laughs> it was like meeting a mythical character because I'd only seen you in like uh, magazines and that sort of thing. So <laughs> it was pretty incredible. Well, I never yeah, told you that. But. I think the important thing to know about is, is that because I was the marketing and sales manager person, I was the person that the public saw. The, the mm -hmm. thing is, is that there were so many people at, at the factory level in management and stuff that actually kept everything moving. And, you know, and, and I like to give credit to them because without them, uh, there would have been no need to market or, or to sell anything because they're the ones that kept everything kind of moving. I just happened to be the person that had the gift of gab that could do the interviews and, and, uh, get the, you know, that the, uh, the TV, not the TV, but the magazines would contact for different statements and things like that. 
and I was at all the shows because normally that's what a marketing person does. They attend all the shows. And because I was a percussionist, I talked the talk and walked the walk. And so therefore, I kind of was out front, but only as the representative for the, all the number of, you know, really great craftsmen and people that were behind me that were actually doing all the heavy lifting. You just said you wrapped up one phase of your career uh, as far as Ludwig goes, but let's go back to the very beginning. What's your earliest uh-huh. recollection of music? Well, I think my earliest recollection of music was probably Elvis Presley. And I just remember as a kid getting like a little toy guitar or something like that. And I remember dancing in the kitchen in my stocking feet where I could slide uh, to Elvis <laughs> Presley music. Like, you know, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. But I'll tell you, I know exactly when I sort of got a bug about music. And that was maybe being five or six years old. All of a sudden, I heard the most tremendous sound that just sent chills up and down my spine. And that was, I heard a drum and bugle corps practicing literally in my backyard because mm. my backyard was against a parking lot for the high school at Meadville high school in Pennsylvania. And the Meadville Thunderbirds came there to practice. And when I heard the brass and the percussion, I just went nuts. I thought that was the most glorious sound I had ever heard. And I would just go down and just be part of that. And I would listen to them. And I even sort of would join in uh, and march alongside them as a little five and six year old uh, to the point where I became their mascot after a while. But, uh, (laughs) but that's, that's what I remember as being the most impactful kind of thing as far as sparking my real interest in music. Uh, But you know, when it was time to play an instrument, Oddly enough, I didn't choose drums. I chose the trumpet. And I think really? it goes back to that moment because when I heard those bugles play, mm-hmm. I, I you know, associated that with trumpets. And I said, well, I wanted to play the trumpet. And <laughs> I started trumpet in fourth grade. And it was one of those things where I was getting better. And, and the, as I kept going higher in the scale, every time I hit the note F, uh, you know, top line F, Mm-hmm. I would get, I would get a bloody nose. Oh. And so, you know, I remember being in concerts and stuff, you know, school concerts. Back then we wore white shirts, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I remember, you know, the blood running down my face onto my shirt. I looked like I, you know, had just been in an accident <laughs> or something. And it was one of those things where the, the band director and, you know, kind of said, Jim, I think you need to consider another instrument. And so, you know, they suggested the flute and they suggested violin because we had orchestra in the band, at, you know, orchestra in the school at that time. And I said, no, I, I got to, I don't know what I want to do, but I, I got to figure it out. And it was around this time that was the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. And I remember that was such a traumatic experience for us people that survived and lived in that era. Okay. And I'll always remember that was in November 22nd, 1963. However, two and a half months later, February 9th, 1964, that's the date watching television, the Ed Sullivan show where I made up my mind what I wanted to do. And that's of course, when I saw Ringo playing his Ludwig drums with the Beatles and I turned to my mom and dad, I said, okay, that's it. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a drummer. And, uh, wow. The rest is history. You know, I became a drummer 
ended up working for Ludwig and knowing Ringo and, um, you know, being part of the team that sort of helps, you know, help build his drum sets over all of these years, you know, from, you know, and, uh, the time I started working at Ludwig in 1983 until now, we've probably done, oh, you know, a dozen to 15 different kits for Ringo over that time. And just being part of that project, not that I was building them, there were real crafts with building them, but you're, you know, you were part of the process. Okay. Wow. And so it's kind of cool that, you know, that, that was uh, the thing, you know, and I don't know, I just, I just became just enamored with music of all kinds, you know, so I played the drums. I, I wanted, and my dad took me to, as I learned to play drums, cause they, they wanted me to take lessons. And I had a really great drum teacher named Cootie Harris, who just passed away about a year and a half ago. And uh, he was a real jazzer. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I sort of, you know, kind of consider myself a jazz drummer and stuff is because I was trained by a real jazzer who was from New York city and came to my small town of Meadville, PA to, you know, try a simpler life. And he took on students and I was one of his students. And I mean, he was, you know, exposing me to deeper jazz than, you know, pop type things. Okay. So that's mm-hmm. what was really great. And, uh, then I got interested in playing the mallet instruments too. And that was simply from my dad taking me to see Lionel Hampton play. And I got wow. to see a guy who played the vibes, but he also played the drums. Right. And, you know, when you're my age, I mean, I'm 65 and a half years old right now, you know, born in 1953, but for someone my age, we got to experience the history of rock and roll, you know, from, yeah. from Elvis Presley through the Beatles, through Led Zeppelin, through, you know, through Yes, all, all, all of those bands, all of that, that time, we got to witness it. It was part of our everyday culture. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I just consider myself really blessed that I grew up during that time period. But, mm-hmm. but all exactly. the time that I had that experience, though, as, you know, experiencing rock and roll, which I played and still played some today, uh, I had uh, my, my dad, I knew, loved big band jazz. And I remember any time that Buddy Rich or Louis Belson was on The Tonight Show starting in 1962, you know, or so, he would always wake me up in the middle of the night and said, hey, <laughs> you want to come down and see Buddy, you know, or see Louis play? And that was always such a great experience. You mentioned your dad a couple times so far. Was your dad a musician or just a fan of music? Just a fan of music. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we were very close, but he was just, you know, always supported my music and and what I wanted to do. Uh, You know, even I always remember in 1971 when I graduated from high school and I had to register for the draft, Um, you know, Vietnam was still going on. And my dad was a Navy man, but I remember him saying, son, I, I want you to do the right thing. And if you get drafted, you're going to have to go. But I want you to practice those drums so that you're the best drummer around so that if you do have to go, you can get in the band. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of his attitude towards it, even though he was a Navy man from World War II and the Korean War also. So he had a, you know, kind of a, he, he didn't want his son to, to fight in that war. Uh, you know, and did so you ever get called up? Wanted, I never did. Uh, my ping pong ball lottery number was 86. And I think that mm-hmm. year they only called up to like 66 or something like that. And then the war started to, to you know, uh, dwindle down in 1972. So I, I never got called. But it was a great incentive to, to uh, 
become better and better at music and be a good student in college. That was great incentive to be a good student in college mm -hmm. because you knew that if you weren't, there was a real good chance you're going to NAM. And right. so I kind of didn't want to do that. So when was your first drumming performance experience? Oh, well, remember I said I was involved with the drum corps, okay? Uh -huh. And so in when I was 12, maybe 13, I might have been 13, so 1966, I actually joined the Erie Thunderbirds Drum and Bugle Corps. It was called the Meadville Thunderbirds first, and then they moved to Erie later. But uh -huh. I joined the drum corps, and my first year, I was a tenor drummer. Mm -hmm. And back then, a tenor drummer, that was a single drum without snares, okay? And then you played yep. with the hard felt mallets. And so I made the tenor line. And back then, a drum corps would have three to four tenor drummers and maybe six snare drummers. You know, but seeing that line, and all the drums looked the same. So a tenor drum and a snare drum would look exactly the same, okay? They were, mm -hmm. they were all 12 by 15-inch drums, but the, you know, the tenors just didn't have snares. So I made the tenor line. And I think that was my first time to be doing some big performances in front of big people when I was 12 or 13. But at the same time, I was starting off to learn how to play, be a drum set player. And mm. I remember doing wedding gigs and, you know, gigs at different clubs and things like that. But I'm talking about like social clubs. I'm not talking about nightclubs, mm -hmm. okay? I'm talking right. about there was a a club called the Italian Civic Club. And I remember there'd be a wedding or some sort of reception there. And my little band with, of junior high people would the, be the band that's playing. And mm -hmm. it was the beginnings of Tijuana Brass. Remember, remember oh, yeah. Herb Alpert? And sure, Tijuana Herb Brass? Albert, yeah. My and dad so loved once them. The saw them on tour. Oh, absolutely. And once yeah. the, the trumpet players could play, ba -da 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 -da, <laughs> then... Yeah. Us drummers, we, we just boom, cha-cha, boom, cha, boom, cha-cha, boom, cha. And it was the kind of a parts that were simple enough to try to learn. And so you could play with guys from, from the band and you know that played trumpet and saxophone, and it was great fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love Herb. was one of my early influences because my father was obsessed with him. So we listened to the – when I was growing up in the uh, 70s and 80s, you know, my dad would play the LPs for us. So, yeah, Herb Albert oh, yeah. and Tijuana Brass, great, great stuff. It was great stuff, uh, yeah. Now, it seems like you had your course set out pretty well from the beginning, but was there any other thing you thought you might have done as a career when you were coming up, or was it always just music for you? Well, I think from a very early age, I, I always knew that I wanted to be an entertainer. I always knew I wanted to go into music, and so that was something that was always part of my goal. But I was also interested in like politics and history and social studies types of things. Okay, I was interested in sciencey things too because you know the you know the Mercury and astronaut in the Gemini program oh, and right. Apollo, mm -hmm. and I was interested in all that stuff. But once I realized that you needed a lot of heavy math skills for those things, it was sort of like okay, that's not going to be me. Okay. <laughs> And so I went more the social studies route. So I would say if I did not go into music, I probably would have been like a social studies teacher. That's probably mm -hmm. what I would have done. Uh, I remember when I was a senior in high school and I was the, you know, the drum captain and, you know, kind of the top player. And I'll always remember the band director, Mr. Paul McCandless, whose, whose, father, whose son is Paul McCandless Jr., who is a very famous jazz oboe player and a soprano sax player. 
who played with Dave Samuels a lot. And, mm. I mean, he's still out there playing today. Well, anyways, his father, my band director, he looked at me one day uh, on the practice field at March Band, you know, in like September of my senior year, and he said, so Jim, what are you going to be doing next year? And I said, oh, well, I'm going to go to Edinburgh University, back then Edinburgh College, and I'm going to study uh, history and social studies. And he just sort of looked at me, kind of smirked on his face, and he said, no, you're not. No, no, no. He said, you're going to be going to music school. You're going to music school. You're going to be a band director. And wow. uh, that was the, I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I remember going home and telling my parents and say, yeah, Mr. McCandless, he thinks that I should go into music and should be a band director. And they said, well, you can do that. And I said, well, well, obviously, <laughs> you know, you know, that's what band directors they have to go to college to get a degree. And so it was there that I first got the idea in my head that I was going to go to college to learn to be a music educator and, wow. and, and better player. And, but it wasn't mm -hmm. until my senior year. And then I just sort of worked it from there, you know, to, to do that. I was scared to death at first, of course, until I realized that I could do it. You know, I, I had the skill sets. I think when you're a percussionist also, and you don't have the melodic training that, you know, that, well, percussionists do today. But in that mm -hmm. era, percussionists didn't have the melodic and harmonic training. And so sure. I had a lot of catching up to do uh, to, uh, you know, to get into the right programs. Eventually, I went to, to school at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, okay? Mm -hmm. And I studied with Gary Olmsted. And uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I also studied with another gentleman who was there part-time uh, during a sabbatical from Mr. Olmsted named Scott Previs. And the importance of that, it's P-R-E-B-Y-S. The importance of that is that he was the guy that first introduced me to lead sheets mm. and playing vibes and playing jazz from lead sheets. I never really understood that. To me, jazz was a big band. Okay, that was pretty mm -hmm. much all it was. <clears throat> or if it was a combo, it was, uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't understand where that music all came from. But then when I was in college, that's when I finally understood it. And that was a, a great revelation for me. And it's one of the things that I still do today. I mean, I play all the time, you know, to lead sheets. In fact, I have gigs oh, coming yeah. up on Vibes with just myself and my iRealPro app playing, uh, you know, real book stuff, you know, where I got, you know, fake piano, bass, and drums. Hey, when the money's low and you don't get, you know, you don't have a lot of money for a small gig like a reception or something. You know, you, you know, the mothers of invention, you go and you find ways to still be out there playing, making music. And if you can use technology to help you do that, so be it. Otherwise, a singer, songwriter, guitar player is going to get the gig. And so right. now I can get the gig as a vibes player and I still have piano, bass and drums behind me. Yep. That's so great. That's that's it's been, you know, quite quite a cool thing. But, yeah, I never really dreamed of having a career in music. That was something that, you know, as far as the on the instrument side of things, I always thought it would be on the performance and teaching side of things. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the part that I think I'm most proud of in my, we'll call it, overall career is that during the time that I worked the business world from 1978 until just recently, I never gave up playing. I kept progressing. I kept getting better. 
and I kept, you know, I, I evolved as a vibes player, as a drummer, as a symphonic percussionist, etc. Um, maybe it's not at the same levels as what I maybe would want to. However, good enough to keep playing and to always get a gig. I mean, like, for, for example, you know, I, I don't have a gig tonight, but I did last night. I just did, you know, three nights of doing a musical called Next to Normal, which is a, mm-hmm. a rock and roll musical. You know, and I'm doing it again next weekend. But starting on Thursday of this week, I have a gig every single night for two weeks in a row. And that's what retirement is for me. I mean, retirement for me is being out there playing music. And then starting in late August, I will be teaching at Notre Dame again and at St. Mary's College. Don't know how many students I will have because when you're an adjunct instructor, you don't really know what you're going to have until registration is done. But, you know, I'm looking forward to it. And it's always a challenge. I mean, one student just emailed me today and says, I'm thinking of signing up for percussion uh, classes. However, uh, I only want to know about Latin percussion. Can you teach me about Latin percussion? Well, you know, that's a tough one for me. I have all the equipment. I sort of mm-hmm. know how to play it, but I also know the real cats that really know how to play it. And <laughs> right. I know that's You not know what me. you don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. And, and yeah. so I had to probe with the student to see just sort of where they're at. And, I, and look, I can get you to a certain level. I can teach you the, 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 the basics and then, you know, maybe to a middle level of, of playing the timbales and bongos and, and, and mm-hmm. conga and djembe and cajon and things of that nature. And we'll do a lot of music. Um, I'll bring in a lot of music that we can play along to to get the feels and things like that and all the different types of rhythms. You know, but when it comes to uh, I can only get you to a certain level. I can't get you to that, that next level. Okay, which right, uh, right. you know, because you know, you, you gotta you gotta really know what you're doing there. I have I have a saying for what I lack in talent and technique and Latin percussion. I make up in equipment. I got the stuff. You know, <laughs> that's great. But you know, as a result of that, I keep getting gigs. You know, playing hand percussion, where you sure. know, I, I'm not a real I'm not a real cat in hand percussion, but yet I have the stuff, and so people will call me because they know I got the stuff. You know, right. <laughs> So was there a pivotal moment early in your career when you were performing somewhere and you're like, yes, I've made the right decision and, you know, you knew you were uh, headed in the right direction? That was probably very early in my career. And I think it was in when I was uh, in the, the Erie Thunderbirds or Meadville Thunderbirds. I didn't I don't know which name they had at the time where we won the state championship of Pennsylvania. And I mm. remember the euphoria that I felt from that and just you know, the performance level of how we were getting so tight. Now, by today's standards, it was probably pretty bad, okay? (laughs) Because today the drum corps stuff is nuts good, okay? However, for that that era of of music, it was sort of like that's when I knew that, yeah, this is what I want to do. You know, and for a long time, I thought I was going to be a drum corps guy, you know, and, Mm. uh, and I was. I was in drum corps for a long time, and... And, you know, I wrote uh, you know, a lot of, you know, core style percussion for high school bands. And, and, uh, and so, so, you know, so I thought that was going to be it. But I also was lucky enough that I, my parents encouraged me to always do a big variety of music. And so I played in big bands. I had my own high school rock bands. And so, but I think winning that state championship and being in front of thousands of people uh, yes, at the time, there would be thousands of people. Uh, you know, smaller shows like that today wouldn't draw very much, I'm sure. But, 
but back in that era there it was a big deal you know and mm-hmm. and so i think that that's pretty much uh you know was when i knew yep this is what i want to do is there one musician over the course of your career as a performer or in the business end of it that you really really um cherish that opportunity to work with said performer i'm sure you could list 10 but is there one or yeah. two that you really like look back on and go, like, wow, I got to work with such and such? Well, sure. This is real simple for me. Uh, in the, in the, in the vibes area, Gary Burton, period. <laughs> I mean, mm. it, it was just, I mean, you know, just a, a great guy, great educator. Uh, I mean, uh, he's the most, <laughs> monster. he's the most sort of the vibe. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was one of those things where, you know, where I, I, I just, really admired what he could do on that instrument still do today I, I tease him whenever i talk to him that i have every single recording even the bootleg recordings of that he <laughs> has done in his in his career and he thinks that i actually may have more recordings of, of him than he does you know <laughs> and so so i'd say you know definitely gary burton and and you know and i work with so many drummers too over the years but i'd say the one drummer that i kind of attached myself to I think the most who's still going strong today is Butch Miles uh, mm. as a jazz drummer and a big band drummer I mean he he did everything that Buddy and Louie and Ed Shaughnessy did and of course Ed and I were very close we were really good friends but I think wow. from a longevity standpoint of you know meeting Butch you know long long ago and that he's still going strong today he was just at the Elkhart Jazz Festival and I just consider him a great friend, but I still consider him a great influence on how I want to play the drums. I still aspire to be able to play the drums like Butch. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think that's good. Great. Now, I aspire to play like Jeff Hamilton, too. I mean, you know, if I had to pick my, my favorite combo drummer, it's definitely Jeff Hamilton or Peter Erskine. I mean, I just love how they shade and color everything they do on the drum set. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there's there's so many that are just so impactful. But yeah, but uh, sure, you know, and yeah, and of course, you know, you always have to give credit back to, to Ringo. That's what got me started, and you know, and I've met him several times, and I go to a lot of the Ringo All Star concerts, and it's still quite a thing. I mean, I'm very proud of my one or two pictures I have with myself and Ringo. It's just like you know, like holy cow, I can't believe I got to meet this guy and and be associated with him for all these years that started me down the path of wanting to be a drummer. Ringo, I assume, if you walked into a room, would know that you're Jim and say, hi, Jim. That must be like crazy that a Beatle, especially Ringo, knows who you are. Yeah, I'm not going to say that, though, because oh. I, I, don't, I don't really know that for, for exact. He probably would know who I am, yes, and and we probably met maybe five or six times over my career, okay? Mm-hmm. However, we're not like, you know, acquaintances, friends type acquaintances, okay? Sure, I'm more, sure. I connect more with his drum tech, Jeff Chonis, okay? Okay. And then when you have time with Ringo, it's very, very, very short. I had one time with him where I got to sit with him at catering and stuff, and, you know, and that was really, really great. But that was, you know, 20-some years ago. Um, okay. I would say sure. the rules of engagement with Ringo are when you are, uh, you don't engage Ringo, he engages you if he wants to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I'm not saying that in a mean way in, on his side. No, right. uh, it's just that he's, he's Ringo and he needs his privacy. And mm-hmm. so he can't have people, especially industry people, 
kind of, uh, you know, like going all over them there and stuff, you know. So I always right. learned to keep my distance and to be very professional. And if he wanted to talk to me, then, you know, Jeff Chodos would bring him over to talk to me. And, and that's the way I'd always left it. Wow, what a great experience. Incredible. Mm-hmm. I know you're playing concert bands, jazz band, musicals, but if I said, listen, Jim, you have one gig, what do you want to play? <laughs> what would it be? Well, well, probably one one gig. It would probably be be big band. I mean, you know, okay. playing, being a drummer in a big band. That you know, and playing bassy, playing comp bassy music. Mm-hmm. That would be that. That's my ultimate. I mean, I I love all of the bassy charts. I've kind of internalized all of that music. That's one of the reasons why I probably, uh, you know, like the way Butch Miles plays because he, you know, for you know, fifteen, sixteen years, he was the bassy drummer, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and so. You know, I would say that that would be my ultimate is to be a you know in the bassy band or play that type of music. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to symphonic music, I mean, you know, playing symphonies of Shostakovich or anything like that. Ah, oh, I mean, those things just capture me and stuff. You know, but as a uh, as and when it comes to combo work, I mean, Clifford Brown, you know, Joy Springs, my favorite jazz tune. My granddaughter mm-hmm. asked me the other day. That, you know, we say, you know, Grandpa, Poppy, she calls me, what's your favorite, you know, favorite jazz tune? And I said, oh, well, it's Joy Spring by Clifford Brown. And she said that because she was doing a Facebook story on me. And then she got the music <laughs> nice. off the Internet and put it out there on stuff, you know. So but but those are, you know, the kinds of things that I love. And, uh, you know, I, I love being a combo vibes player. And uh, I, I have a saying on vibes that, you know, I'm still evolving, still getting better at 65 and a half years old. I call myself a work in progress, just running out of time. Have there been any specific challenges or problems in the music industry or any advice you'd give to young people wanting to go into it? When I give talks at colleges, I always talk about similar things. You know, and, and people will ask me, they say, well, Mr. Catalano, you were the marketing manager for Ludwig for all those years. And, you know, do you have any advice of, you know, what were the, you know, how did you do it? And I said, well, first of all, I was in the right place at the right time. And that's just the truth. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, I just happened to be at the right place, met with the right people to get the gig. But I have a saying, like, you know, uh, I went to Notre Dame. I got a graduate assistantship, a full ride to Notre Dame for grad school. I was lucky to go to Notre Dame, but I wasn't lucky to graduate. I had to do something. And -hmm. likewise, to get an opportunity to work in the music industry, yes, I was very lucky to get an opportunity. But to stay in it for 41 years, well, that took a little bit more than luck. Okay, mm. but I always tell kids the same thing or college kids, I would say, I say, you know, there's the three most important things that you can do to prepare yourself for a, a career in the music industry. And they're, yeah, they're waiting. And I say reading, writing and arithmetic. What? Mm. And I say, well, reading, I said, you got to be able to comprehend, um, you know, writing, you got to be able to, you know, communicate both verbally and, and written, you know, and arithmetic. You got to be able to handle numbers, and I say you don't need to handle c- complex numbers. I-, I was terrible at fractions in school, and I don't even know how to spell calculus. But <laughs> I knew how to run a business. I knew how to do business math, and you know, and I knew the differences between uh, you know expenses and you know top line revenue and things like that, and EBITDA. And so once I understood the basics of business. And then I was able to run a successful division of a business for a long time. 
I always talk about something else, though, is that when you go to a job, when you go to anything, there's, there's kind of four things you've got to bring with you uh, to be successful. Number one is you've got to have technical competence, no matter what you're doing. I mean, whether it's in music or in, in reading, writing, arithmetic, in managing a business, whatever, in doing computers, you've got to have technical competence. Number two is you have to have the ability to fit in. In other words, if you go to a place and you think you're all superior and stuff, you're not going to fit in very well. But likewise, if you go in and you're all woe is me and, oh, I don't think I can get this, well, you're not going to fit in very well. You know, so you have to find a, a balance to fit in. Uh, I, I always tell people, too, that you know, for me, when I was just starting in the music industry, I was a young guy working in an industry with much older people. I had to fit in with that. But hmm. at the tail end of my, industry, of my industry experience before I retired, it was the exact opposite of that. Now, I'm the right. old man, and now I'm working with a lot of 20 and, 30, and early 30-year-olds, and I have to fit in with them. They kept me young. I mean, I learned from them. I, I learned more about social media. I learned more about computers and stuff, and I you know, embraced that. So fitting in. Then the third thing, I call it be flexible. And what I mean by that is you're going to constantly see nothing but change throughout everything that you experience in your career and in life in general. I mean, when I started in the music industry in 1978, there were basically six drum companies, okay? Today, there's mm -hmm. like 160 drum companies total because some only make steel drums, some only do Latin percussion, et cetera. Mm -hmm. you know? But there's so much more diversity and variety. Things have split up so much. And so you have to be flexible. The other thing is, is that things, people are changing jobs fast. For example, even myself. In my 30, past 36 years working at Ludwig, I had 34 bosses. Wow. And so each time you have a change like that, you have to go with that flow. And sometimes your changes can be polar opposite changes. So in other words, you're going, you know, one direction and you're going, you know, with the next boss, you're going 180 degrees the other way. And then when they're wow. gone, now you're going back 180 degrees the other way again. And so, <laughs> so, so that's what I mean about be flexible. You've got to accept change and adapt and go with it. And I can tell you this that the amount of change I experienced in the early part of my career was nothing compared to the end of my career. In other words, mm. it, the change quotient continued to expand and expand. Change was happening faster, 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 more multiple changes over and over and over again. And to a place where your mind starts spinning, and so you just have to know that you, that things are going to change and you've got to a change and adapt with it. Then the fourth thing I always tell people is this, and it's something that I hopefully I'm known for, and that is you've got to have passion for what you do. And then I go and I say, look at me, passion for what you do, even when you, when you don't. Even when you don't. What that means is simply not every decision you're going to like. Not every directional thing that you have to do in your life or your career is something that you are going to agree with. However, you're being paid to do a job, and you got to go with it, and you got to have passion for what you're doing, even when you don't. So in other words, no matter what you might think inside, your outside presentation has to be one of passion. And mm. those are the things that, that will keep people 
working and keep you, you know, in a in a job uh, for you know for a long period of time. And uh, I think for me though, you know, working in the business world was one thing, but without continuing to be an active performing uh, musician and a clinician, because you know I've done clinics at TMEA mm-hmm, sure. and Midwest and American Band College and all sorts of different places. By by keeping my kind of my my foot in the fire there, I it gave me more credibility. And so mm-hmm. you know I talk about talking the talk and walking the walk. In a way, I had that ability to do that because when I would talk about the vibraphone, I could sit down and I could show somebody what I was talking about. Or and then I could right. go over, even though I don't consider myself a great timpanist. When I would try to explain something on timpani, I could play what I'm trying to explain. Uh, you know, one day, one of the many Selmer owners or, you know, top people over the years, they said, so, Jim, just what do you bring to this job as the percussion person? And I said, mm-hmm. well, you see these two catalogs here? Yeah, this one has all the drum set stuff in it. And this one has all the mallet percussion and timpani and, and et cetera. Yeah, I said, well, I can professionally play every single instrument that's in this catalog. Hmm. That's what I bring to the job, and I can talk about it. And uh, so, you know, those are just some important things to me. Well, that's all great advice, and it segues right into my next question. You were talking a lot about passion. Is there anything outside of the music world that you're passionate about and like to uh, invest time in? Well, first of all, I'm very close to my family, okay? So my family, my wife and and uh, my my kids and and my uh, my grandchildren now, so that's a very important part of my life. I'm also very involved in church, uh, mm-hmm. and I play in the praise team at church, and so that's something that I love to do. But now that I'm retired, I am trying to take better care of my health. Uh, every morning, I try to get up and I go out and I ride my bike for oh anywhere from ten to fifteen miles, sometimes twenty, and it's great. Um, you know, during the good weather, of course, and when it gets into winter, then I have my elliptical that I'll, I'll you know, transition to. But I'm trying to, um, you know, to get more involved in that. That's something I'm very passionate about. And uh, I don't know, I, I just love, I love reading about, you know, history and things like that. You know, why mm-hmm. things happen, what, you know, what makes things work. I'm, I'm that guy that if, if, uh, if I have a time, for any free time to watch TV, I'd much rather watch PBS than anything else. Oh, yeah. And so that's just kind of, you know, where where I come from. That's great. Um, So if any of the listeners want to connect with you or find out what projects you're involved with, what bands you're playing with, uh, where could they go online to uh, connect with you? My Facebook page. That's great. Uh, And when I post this podcast, I'll have a direct link to your Facebook page so people can uh, connect with you there. Okay. So, Jim, over the last couple of years, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and connecting with you. And now I follow you on Facebook, and I've got to hang out with you at the NAMM show a few times. And um, I can't thank you enough for taking time to share your stories and advice with all the listeners to the podcast. And um, I hope your gigs are often and many in the future. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. To find out more about Jim or to get in contact with him, please follow the link included with this podcast to his Facebook page. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Thanks for listening.